Hello and welcome to The Prestige, a podcast all about films, filmmaking, filmmakers and film theory. Each week we're going to pick a movie, although this month we're focusing on a particular director, as we're doing all season, this third season. Um, We're going to review that movie, talk about it and discuss some of the ideas and themes that it throws up. And we always end with recommendations of further watching based on the actors or directors or themes involved in that week's film. Before we kick off, um, we always do a quick catch-up on what else we've been watching. So, Rob, what about you? I have finally, finally seen Wonder Woman. Having heard Mm. everyone who I I know about films wax lyrical about this for so long... um, we finally sat down and watched it. Uh, obviously, with the little one, films kind of come and go, and we didn't see them in the cinema as much. But we finally caught up Wonder Woman. And it was a very distinct, eh, from my household. It's, I don't know, it, it, I, maybe I went into it with two reputations from the outpouring of love that, uh, that, that it got. And I will obviously, you know, I will recognise the importance of a female-led, female-fronted superhero action movie that we have actually seen um, anywhere else uh, from any of the, the, the big producers so far. So it's certainly an important film in that respect. But as a film, I was uninterested and unenthralled by it. It was very pretty in the kind of Zack Snyder uh, way, and everyone in it did a fine job. Um, but it just didn't connect with me. I didn't kind of make any kind of emotional connection with the story or, or any of the uh, characters. Oh dear. So yeah. <laughs> it, it's it's a film that I would probably chalk up to as discussed. Important, but, you know, yeah. Well, you have your little moments of wrongness. We'll just put this down to one of those. I, I say, I think, it, I don't think it's a bad film in any way. There are many bad films that I just didn't care about any of it. I was more interested, shall we say, in the ensemble of Irregulars that were assembled by Captain Travers and one woman for their mission. That was, for me, a far more interesting story. The idea of this band of of misfits uh, trying to stop the war than the battle that one woman has uh, with her enemies. It just felt like there was a better, a better story there. Um, but then I'm a big fan of ensemble films and a big fan of that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, it was. It wasn't bad. It was. It was. It was enjoyable two hours of my life but it didn't it didn't rock my world in the way I was putting it to well I don't agree with you about the whole thing I definitely agree with you on the the ensemble thing there because I remember feeling distinctly disappointed that that was all we were going to get from that ensemble it seemed like because because of the photo there was that sort of narrative arc that ended Mm. and I thought well why don't we hear more about that? That was fun. Yeah. So I will agree with you. Yeah, I, I did want more from that story. So, yeah. All right, you, Sam. What have you been watching this week? As as we've established, I've been lax in my media watching duties for other reasons this past month. So I've been catching up on things coming back from Honeymoon. And one of the things I caught up on is something that I'm doing a podcast on this week. Another podcast? Yes, I am. I am cheating on you. Damn it, man. But don't worry, it's not a film podcast, it's a TV podcast. Um, It is the Marvel series, The Defenders, 
which I have been looking forward to for a long time and I have um, sacrificed 13 hours of my life to watch the execrable Iron Fist so that I would be up to speed with the story and Iron Fist is truly terrible. Um, and it was really enjoyable. It was it was not absolutely amazing. I didn't have the same reaction that I did to Luke Cage, for example, but I thought it was it was really enjoyable. Um and Marvel seemed to have learnt the lesson with I mean occasionally they they've been accused of putting unnecessary episodes into series to put to pad them out to thirteen. This is very tight. This is an an eight episode series and it seems like Every episode is there for a reason. Mm. Um, the bits involving Finn Jones as Iron Fist were terrible, as you'd expect. But if you were prepared to switch off for those bits and then tune back in for the rest of it, it was it was very enjoyable. Oh, good. I'm I'm still yet to see a complete uh, show from the Marvel TV series. In which case, actually, that might be a good one to start with because. As I said, it's shorter, it's punchier, it's a it's a self-contained story, and you don't really need to have seen. I mean, it it helps to have seen the narratives of the individual characters, but what's at play here is, like you said, the interaction. Like you said before, the interaction with an ensemble is what this whole series is about. So it might be more your thing. I may I may give it a shout. Then. This week, we are continuing our Akira Kurosawa month, and we are moving on to what may be his most famous film. Certainly, his is uh, the film for which he is best known, and it is often considered one of the best films of all time in many, many polls. And that is the 1954 film Seven Samurai. <laughs> ヤシンと巧妙に疲れた狂気の時代に全く名利を変えりみ哀れな百姓たちのために戦った七人の侍の話彼らは無名のまま風のように去った Seven Samurai, unsurprisingly, tells the story of seven samurai who are recruited by some villagers to defend themselves against a roving band of bandits who are attacking their town and they've got some time in which to defend their town. And so they hire the samurai and they are a a ragtag bunch of misfits, shall we say, and they come together to defend this small village. If this story sounds familiar, it is because this is one of the most remade and copied ideas in cinema, shall I say, if you want to call it a meme in terms of a, a plot device. It has been used in everything from the clear remakes and things like uh, Magnificent Seven, always through to some subtle ones and things like Bugs Life, and almost every single TV show ever has at least one scene that is, that is of this of this ilk. It is the film that broke Akira Kurosawa in the West, um, and it is certainly his most westernised film. It is his longest film. It comes in at three and a half hours. It sees the return of his many of his traditional players in Michio Fanane, Takashi Shimuru, um, Shimura even, um, 
and it has a lot of the same sort of visual full marks of his previous films. Sam, I think this may have been the one you've seen prior to this month, um, but how was it for you? Um, I thought it was, and it turns out I've only seen Snatcher this film, possibly in the context of seeing other films. I haven't actually seen this from start to finish. Um, although I have seen some of Akira Kurosawa's work. I I really enjoyed this film. Um, from, uh, from the very outset, and it's something that we talked about with Rashomon, the... The music that's used is great, and the the framing that's used is great, and the so the the sort of the visual and and cinematic presentation of this is it draws you into it. So even like that that first line in Rashomon, the um, was that I don't understand it. It pulls you in. There's something about this film that pull, pulls you in as well, and um, starting with sort of the the bandits looking down on the village. Mm. Um. Yeah, I I really enjoyed it. I I thought well, yes, it's long, but I have problems with films being long. I have problems with just about every film over two hours that I see at the cinema being too long. But it felt that this film wasn't too long. This film needed to be this long. Nearly every film, every frame in the film felt sort of necessary to advance the plot or to say something about the characterisation. Um, and so I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and we can go into sort of explorations of the plot later on, but in in general it was a really enjoyable experience. Um, I did have to write down the names of the seven samurai so that I could track them because it was a bit confusing at the start um, but by the end I think I had a handle on it so Rob I mean I I believe this is one that you've seen a lot of and hold in very high regard what what did you feel sort of going back to it um, well, for a rewatch I, I, have, I probably have seen this film I don't know four or five times over, over the years it, it's not you know it's not in my the top ten films I've seen forever kind of thing um, but it's certainly a film that I've seen a lot of. And I think it's a film that bears repeat viewing very well. As you say, it, it is three and a half hours long and it earns those three and a half hours. It does mm. things with all of it. It doesn't feel padded. Um, and, you know, you, you can look at this in terms of, you know, it's pure action adventure nature. But then the bad guys don't show up. They're there for the first sort of half an hour and then they disappear and they come back in the last sort of hour. And you don't really have them as a large part of the film, and it uses that time very well. And all, see, you said there's seven, there's seven uh, samurai. That is true, but they all get something to do. They all get characterization. Very often with these kind of ensemble films, some of them are just kind of left to do nothing. They just filler. Hmm. Um, there's even a, a joke in if you. I mean, this isn't a, a straight line being too, but if you ever watch Pitch Perfect which is another ensemble film, uh, although more close to a sports drama than an action film. There's literally a joke in there which there are the two people who are in the back of every scene and don't say anything. And at the end, they're like, well, we've been here all along. And I think they, this film managed to completely avoid that. And every all of the seven get a moment. They get a characterization. And the same for some of the villagers. The villagers have their own stories to tell. 
as always, I approach a lot of films from a technical visual point of view, and I think this film shows off Akira Kurosawa's flair for visuals more so than almost any other film. Rashomon is a, a close from last week, but it's certainly this one has all the same visuals and has all the power of being in literally once again one place. Um, and we'll touch more on on the visuals that I want to talk about later. In the thing, but for me. It's it's his best film. It's one of my favourite films of his. It's not my favourite film of his. Well, that one comes in next week. Um, but it's certainly... It earns its place in film history. Mm. I thought, in terms in terms of a theme this week, and there's a, there's a lot to go at in this film, um, and I like the relationship that you have, and it sort of teased out in this... This idea of of an ensemble cast and each one playing his role, as you said, that or in in the case of she, you know, I suppose her role. Um, but something I want to talk about in the context of this film was the idea of individuality, and individuality being a bad thing, mm. and community being a good thing, and then that gets complicated by the very end, and spoiler alert I'm about to talk about the very end of the film but you have that scene in which um, well first, first off Katsu is rejected by Shino but then then you have the two older samurai turn to each other to talk about what's happening and they say they have lost and it's the farmers who have won the farmers will always be triumphant mm. and you have this brilliant a sort of pathetic ending to the film which should be triumphant it should be yay we've won and we're the warriors and we're I suppose sort of at the end of every superhero film nowadays where you have good triumphing over evil you have a moment where they sit back and Tony Stark says look at us we're great with the Avengers or whatever and in this case you have that moment which should be of triumph has the farmers celebrating life and the farmers moving forward and the samurai saying we i don't know why we've done this because we're lost and it's the farmers who won i think that this is where we say we we touch on the idea of, of community but also i think of of class mm. um there is yeah. there is this there is this understanding in Japanese society of this time, and still, I think to this day, though I can't claim to be any kind of Japanese scholar, that everyone has a class and a place, and to, to, to stick in your place is an important part of that culture. So the samurai's job is to fight and die; that is their job, um, and they do this for honor, and they do this for duty, and they do this for all things. But that is, that is their job, and that's why you've got. Um, the character I'm looking look at the names right now. Um, looking at the uh, Kikuchiro, the machine for any character who isn't a samurai but claims to be a samurai, mm. um, and he makes that claim with family history. He makes that claim with "I'm the son of this person, the son of that person," and it's about that kind of family tree and being of the samurai class, and even the lowly farmers. Um, if you want to call them the lay farmers, the Manzo character, he is fears for his daughter to, to to become one with the samurai class, and somehow it is feeling that they need these samurais, but 
they don't like these samurais. And it's clear, as in one scene, they have already killed some samurais. Hmm. Um, so there's there's a whole series of complex class distinctions here. And it's all about that kind of you sticking your role. And the, and the scene in which Kikuro goes off and steals, gets a gun, he manages to get one of the guns off the ammo, which should be a good, a good, a good moment. But he left his flank exposed. He left his post. He he abandoned his fellow men. And this idea of duty and I'm I'm trying to think a little bit about community responsibility. Hmm. Um, he 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 doesn't have. Or he and that, and that and that's something that you don't get. That's something that gets sort of flattened out in later adaptations of this in the Magnificent Seven, for example, but in any other any number of adaptations under a bug life. Um you don't have this same sense of I mean I was just thinking that you said there there are six samurais and then one wannabe samurai. Mm. And you don't you can't really represent that in the Magnificent Seven because the old West of America doesn't have the same class hierarchy that ancient Japan had, no. that feudal Japan had. I think that if you want a, a, a good analogy, as I mentioned earlier, a bug's life is a very good version of this because they, you have worker ants and you have soldier ants. And mm. the story is about a worker ant becoming a soldier ant and crossing that That's... line. Yes. Not really tying into a theme, but maybe tying into a little bit of a theme. Is one thing I wanted to highlight again, and I think this is where Akira Kurosawa makes his real mark. I discussed it a little bit last week with um, Ashman. Is this idea of depth and depth to all his shots. Now, if you want to look at this film, this film is very much, it's, like, it's a small story. Like, it may have described as a cinema epic, it's, it's two and a half hours long, three hours long, but it is a small story about a few people and one village. And this, for me, this is shown in many ways. But one of the ways is that all the scenes have this sense of depth. In that you have a foreground, a middle ground, and a background action. And even if our focus is that background action, we still have the other three in the chain. And there's a great scene early on in which you see um, Kuzo. Is it Kuzo? Kuzo. The, uh, the very talented samurai swordsman. Very taciturn. Mm. Um, you see him kill a, a someone who's challenging him essentially, and there's this whole sort of crowd, this kind of almost like Greek tragedy esque chorus that follows him around. And there's a shot in which they all run around to see what's going on, but in the background there are just people walking through a town, and all the worlds that Kurosawa creates feel lived in because there's always something else going on. Even when you've got all these scenes of recruiting all the samurai, there's always something else happening and then this is why I think the film rewards these, these international viewings there's always something in the background it may be someone talking or some local street sellers or some kids playing around but it, it grounds this in a real sort of physical tangible space and I think that's even pushed a little bit further once we get towards the village itself because we have this this re- recurring motif of the map um, and we spend all this time the, the central, central third of this film is all about building these locations is we end up with this real physical sense of this place. This real sort of almost tangible, hold it in your hand feeling of, I I know, I understand this is a real place. Hmm. So many films, and I, I would happily point to some like the um, Transformers films as, as kind of a bit, a bit bad at this, a terrible kind of uh, um, criminal for this. You end up with a sense of, 
I have no idea where this is happening and what's happening. Especially mm. in the more violent, fast action scenes. You, you end up with just this flash of CGI. And it takes place in some nondescript town, as and this is a downtown area of, a, of any any town anywhere in America. Whereas this has a sense of this is the town. You understand when they're, they're letting one person through, or they're going to the east, or going to the west, or going to the mill. You have a feeling and understanding of what that means and what that place is like. Hmm. I would. I was just thinking. I would take as an example. This may not feel connected, but it is. Um. Something which is one of my favourite films, which I love, is District 9. And you think that on the face of it, this could be one of those nondescript, smash em up, Transformer-esque violence films mm. involving aliens and guns. But actually, if you look a little deeper, this is rooted in the shanty towns of Earth thinly disguised city in South Africa. This is Johannesburg. And so you have those those two different levels and there you have a director, you have Neil Blomkamp saying, actually the the reality is important. So like Kirikos how this is rooted in somewhere real, even though it's it's fantastical, even though he's talking about aliens. And that is something that that roots this this sort of extended metaphor about racial disharmony in in something that we can understand. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think I think part of that is is the camera work that you get as well. Hmm. What I would probably say is as the subjective camera and the objective camera. And the subjective camera is the shots, especially think of the sort of the final battle in which they've got all these villagers fighting the uh, bandits and horses. And there's this reoccurring back and forth between two camera shots, one of which is on the ground in which the the people fall off the bandits fall off the horses and slam into the mud and then get killed. And then a shot from looks like the rooftop, I suppose, looking down at everybody. And the subjective camera is the one on the floor. The one where you're at the action in the action. It's not, it's not a POV shot, but you're in that action. And this mm. has become the de facto camera for so many action films as you could be there, you could be in the action. Um we talked about this a little bit with um Catherine Bigelow and on her last week for um, Hurt Locker, it's all in the action. That kind of cinema veritas shot from in inside the um, POV of someone on on set. And if you do too much of that, it's where you lose it. You pull it back up to the objective camera, which is the one, the god camera, shall we call it, looking down over the scene and re-establishing that um, the, the the location. And you know when you watch a film these days, often you get like wide shot and you start you start wide, and then you cut in for the conversation then you cut back out as the scene ends here he's cutting between all these shots throughout the entire the entire battle so there's always a chance within a minute or so to cut back and understand where we are in a larger sense hmm i would take that further as well there's something in those um sort of on the ground shots that doesn't tell you everything mm. there is a there's a tendency in i mean if a director is is portraying a battle scene on screen, you think, well, I've got to be visceral and I've got to give give the audience absolutely everything. But it's interesting that even before he cuts away to a rooftop shot, he will not show everything. You have one of those battles, and it's the one where Yohai gets killed. It's one of the bandit raids. But you have the bandits being shot and falling off their horses into the mud. 
and you don't see the moment of contact. You just see the body sort of dropping into view and then hitting the mud. Mm. And you think, well, a lesser director might have sort of zoomed in on this on this sort of viscerality of the this death, but Kurosawa is content just to cut away from it and just to frame it in an interesting way, and then and then, like you said, pull back. So he he uses him his camera work to purposely not show you everything about war because because it's right you can't know everything about the experience of war yeah it, it's it's uh it can put you at say and i think it's interesting that that final battle is covered in rain and deep in mud mm. this is it's meant to be like a knockdown scrap it's meant to be with discussed with drunken angel but be grimy and dirty and even those that kind of survive it come out d- marked by it mm. um and you know you, you look at the, the, the sort of them the uh the main samurai um kanbei like he's clearly a man beaten down by his by the the process of which he's become as good as he is at warfare like he, he's he is battle weary um he says um to he to his second command you know once again we survive and there's yeah. always a moment of sadness to that. That he's he's every battle, every death is is a mark on him, mm. and a weight on him. Yeah. Which is a cheery place to end it. Yeah, yeah, be so. So, Rob, do you have something slightly more uh, cheerful for us in the way of recommendations? I do. I've got two recommendations. First one is a film from the 1980s called Battle Beyond the Stars. This is a Roger Corman sci-fi adventure space opera, if you want to kind of call it that. Um, it is essentially a space opera version of this film. It is one of the the many remakes, reboots of it down the years. Peaceful farmers of the planet Akira um, are threatened, and uh, Zed, the last Akira warrior, uh, pulls together a ragtag bunch of people to defend uh, his planet. It is very much in the Roger Corman B-movie catalogue, but I think it's brilliant. It's right up my street. Uh, if you if you have any interest in that kind of 80s, 70s, 80s weird sci-fi um, that birthed things like Silent Runnings, Zardoz, all that kind of same kind of ilk, it, it'll be right up your street. And it's got a fun ensemble space adventure vibe. Right. Second one is a bit of a strange one. It has some links, but I was just I was reading up on on the process of making Seven Samurai, which I must say prior to this week I've never really dove, dove much into. And one thing that was that was mentioned in this was that originally it was just six samurai. And it was realised that of those six, none of them were very fun or none of them had a lot of they were all very sober. And so they added the character Toshiro's character. Um, to add an element of adventure and spark and and sort of personality to um, to to the band to the movie, which I think I think it needed. And this reminded me of a story about the two thousand and six TV series Heroes. Have anyone seen Heroes? Essentially, it's about superheroes, the birth of superheroes um, across the world, and the, in it there is a character played by Masioka called Hiro Nakamura, who is a, a, um, a Japanese character who can stop time and teleport. 
And he is the only one who has fun with it. Everyone else is sort of weighed down by the possibility of their, of their powers. And the story goes that the writer's wife was like, no one in this the story enjoys their powers. You need someone who enjoys their powers. And that's why his character was added. Hmm. Once again, it has an element of ensemble pulling together this ragtag bunch of superheroes to defend the world. And uh, he ends up with a samurai sword. So that's my recommendation. But I just I just like the parallel between, once again, you've got an ensemble cast trying to deal with serious topics, but this feeling that actually we need to put someone in there who enjoys it, you know, hmm. enjoys being a samurai or enjoys being a superhero. You need someone, you can't have everyone weighed down by um, the weight of it. In, in the same, if you look at MCU, you need Spider-Man, you need Ant-Man, you need... Hmm. Um, Star Lord, just as much as you need more serious characters like Gamora or Iron Man or Captain America. Hmm. What about you, Sam? Right, well, I have two recommendations which are straight down the middle more than more than Rob's this week, certainly. Um, the first is an actor connection. Um, the... As I said, I, I've only I thought I'd seen Seven Samurai. Turns out I've just seen bits of it. The only Akira Kurosawa film I've seen from start to finish um, involves again is another one involving Shiro Mifune. It's made a few years after Seven Samurai, and it's a version of Shakespeare's Macbeth set in ancient Japan. Um, it's called Throne of Blood from 1957, and I am quite a fan of interesting Shakespeare adaptations. I mean, I love Shakespeare anyway, but I'm... Because you're a massive nerd. Because I'm a massive nerd, says you. I'm a cool nerd, though. Cool nerd. Uh, Yeah, right. You tell yourself that. Shakespeare adaptation, and it's very good, and it involves Shirmafuni, and it's Akira Kusau in the midpoint of his his high period in the, the late 50s. Um, mid late fifties, and it, it's really enjoyable. My second film is, um, I'm I'm not sure whether it's a recommendation or not. Although it, it was quite fun, I remember it being quite fun. I saw it in the cinema at the time. Um, it was nothing earth shattering. It was certainly not Kurosawa esque, um, but. It, it was it was enjoyable enough, and it's the 2010 film Thirteen Assassins, um, which is not not great, but an enjoyable way to pass two plus hours. And if you're a fan of the samurai genre and you want to see what sort of things have been influenced by um, Kurosawa afterwards, then you could do worse than seeing Thirteen Assassins. Fair enough. Well, guys, next week we are jumping 16 years into the future, at least from Seven Samurai, and we are picking up in 1970 with a Kira film, Dodez Kaden. Till then, guys, you can find us both on Twitter at Pretty Podcast. You can find just me at Life underscore Academic. And you can find just me at Rob Kaiju. We would welcome anyone who wanted to come and and give us a review. Any of our listeners who wanted to jump onto iTunes and give us a a good review, um, that would be great. We'd be most welcome.
and we love hearing from you and we love input from you and we will at some point get around to doing an episode on Mother, I promise. It just <laughs> may not be in our lifetimes. We will at some point, I promise you. <laughs> Till then, guys. We'll see you next week. Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries. Rawr! Arg.